Welcome to the After Talk at Universe University. Today, we welcome Beth Gordon. She has visited nearly every Apollo Museum exhibition in the United States. You can follow the amazing images of her travels on Instagram at Space Whippet. Well, thank you for being on the program. You said this is actually your first podcast. This is. Thanks for inviting me. I'm excited sure. to be here. Um, so for people who might not be familiar, um, you have a pretty popular Instagram account with pictures of your beautiful dog in front of a wide variety of Cold War era space race hardware, Mercury, uh, Gemini, and Apollo. Um, yeah. So I photographed my dog with seven flown spacecraft in a number of air and space museums around the country. I always get explicit permission from each museum because I don't want to just wander into museums with my dog or make like make people think that they can wander into museums with their dog. Sure. So like, first of all, my dog's not a service dog. We're not pretending he's a service dog. So just to get that out of the way, we get explicit permission and we visit either before or after hours for his Instagram. So, so um, how did you come up with the idea to photograph your dog in museums on an Instagram account? Um, so first of all, I, I started this Instagram account. I kind of wanted to learn about influencer marketing, that sort of thing. I figured I would find some cool places to take pictures of him. Um, I was coming back from a dog training conference with him and kind of Googling around where's cool places I could photograph him with. Um, I came across a moon tree in Salem, Oregon, and I was like, what in the world is a moon tree? And kind of fell down this rabbit hole of research. So I got excited about sort of sharing information about science and history on his Instagram as well, instead of just posting pictures of him and saying, oh, like, happy Friday, or oh, no, it's Monday again. I wanted to do something more substantive than that. Um, so after I kind of got that idea, I found this cat account called Purry Gagarin, <laughs> and they had this, all these pictures of this cat in museums, and the lighting was so perfect and they were so beautiful that I thought they were photoshopped. Oh. Um, and one day I saw they had posted a video of their cat, like walking across a gantry at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center. So I was like, these are not photoshopped. This is real. Wow. Um, I sent them a message and I was like, how did you get permission to take your cat to museums? And they said, just ask. Um, wow. who, who is this cat person? Um, Puri Gagarin, the Cosmo cat. Interesting. <laughs> we'll, we'll, have, we'll have to follow them on our, yeah, on our absolutely. own Instagram. Yeah, because I, I thought the pictures were fake. It turns out they weren't. So they said, hey, just ask. So I just asked one museum and they said yes, and then I asked another museum and they said yes, and then it just kind of exploded from there, and now we've been to 31 museums and we're going to Museum of Flight tomorrow. That's incredible. Yeah. I'm um, as surprised as you. <laughs> <laughs> so um, backing up a little bit, for our listeners who might not be familiar, what is a moon tree? What is a moon tree? Um, so Stuart Russo is an astronaut on Apollo 14. He was a smoke jumper in the U.S. Forest Service, which are the people that jump out of airplanes and fight forest fires. To kind of honor the U.S. Forest Service, he took uh, 500 tree seeds with him on Apollo 14, and they flew around the moon. So they didn't come down onto the moon, they stayed in the command module, but they still went into space and were part of Apollo 14. When they came back, they accidentally exposed the canister to vacuum, and they thought that the tree seeds might have died, but they planted them anyway. Um, almost all of them germinated, and they planted them as part of the bicentennial in 1976. Um, so there's moon trees all over the country. Probably the closest one to you guys is in Olympia at the state capitol. It's fantastic. Check it out. Yeah. yeah. It's fantastic. Does it look like it was... <laughs> it just looks like a tree. 
Um, there's five it didn't mutate yeah, into no. alien form. No, it looks like a Douglas fir. There are five different species they, they took. I think the one at Olympia is a Douglas fir. Because so, they wanted to have ones that would grow mm. well over the country, right. so they chose different species that would grow well in different areas. Mm. So, so uh, we obviously here in Washington have the Museum of Flight mm-hmm. where uh, the Saturn V's F1 engines are displayed, and those are very uh, impressive. But uh, talking to you about the museum, mm-hmm. different museums you've been to, are there any museums that you've been to that were kind of obscure that didn't really stand out on a, on a national or international basis where you m- yes. managed to find some interesting things? I want to tell everyone to go to Weatherford, Oklahoma and visit the Stafford Air and Space Museum. Oh, it's yeah. fantastic. And I think it's the most underappreciated Air and Space Museum that I have been to. Um, they have the Apollo Soyuz hatch. So I took a picture of my dog, like, shaking my hand in front of the hatch. Uh, The docking hatch, which they docked the the Apollo vehicle and the Russian, uh, or Soviet-era Soyuz vehicle together. and they had the famous handshake between the American and the the Russians. Um, They also have uh, Gemini 6A there, so you can see the flown spacecraft there, um, in which Tom Stafford played Jingle Bells on the harmonica, which is pretty cool. That's fantastic. Um, Yeah, they have a bunch of other artifacts. They have a full-size model of the command and service module, so you can see sort of the scale of that. Um, they have an F1 engine. They have a they have an actual mission control console from Johnson, and once in a while Tom Stafford shows up. That's so incredible. We almost got to meet him. He was there that day, but our schedules didn't quite line up. Have so. you met any astronauts? Um, I have not met any astronauts. I had a, a friend of mine uh, the other day met Scott Kelly. Oh, cool! Um, uh, Vera Demchenko was actually her her name, and she was on uh, one of our after talk programs about Mars. So for any of our listeners who haven't heard that after talk, that's a few episodes back. Oh, fantastic. How fun. Definitely. Oklahoma is a strange place for them to have such a cool I, little collection. I mean, Tom Stafford's from Weatherford, Oklahoma, uh, so it actually makes a lot of sense. Have you been yeah. to the, um, I guess another one, sort of the middle of the country, is the, gosh, Kansas Cosmosphere? I have I have not taken Kuiper there, but I've been there on my own, and that was absolutely amazing. Like, it was just absolutely eye-opening. Like, so you'd I, recommend that one also? Oh my gosh, yeah, absolutely, Yeah. It's, I mean, I walked in there and the first thing you see is a portrait of Hitler. And I was like, what is this? And I learned so much about this. I knew almost nothing about the American space program before I went to the cosmosphere. And mm-hmm. I learned so much, like, just where it all came from and what happened and kind of the politics. Um, and so I, I take it the the painting of Hitler has some kind of connection to Werner von Braun and the V2 yeah. rockets. When you, walk, when you walk in, the first thing they start with is World War II and the development of the V2. And they actually have a V2 there. Um, mm. And they kind of go all the way through the space race. But I learned, I mean, kind of the story you learn in school is like, yay, the Americans won, we went to the moon, but like everything that led up to that and kind of all the failures that led up to that and how like we ended up making it a priority when we didn't previously make it a priority was really interesting. Like I learned about the Vanguard satellite, like everything that you've seen on my Instagram, I pretty much learned originally from the Cosmosphere. So yes, highly recommend the Cosmosphere. And before we began our recording, we were just mm-hmm. talking about how history is, is difficult because you want to make it fun and interesting yeah. and accessible to people, but it is very dark. And I think the space race is no yeah. exception that yeah. um, landing on the moon was a, a wonderful, peaceful thing that right. we did that I, I'd still like to think as, as naive or idealistic as it might sound, that it's something that all of humanity can take pride right. in and like find something very positive. Right about as well as all the technological spin-offs that came as a result yeah. of the space race but I mean it was definitely like all these political underpinnings it wasn't just like rah rah America let's go to the moon like we were trying to like you know one up the Soviets like you can't argue about that it wasn't just like let's spend all this money because we want to do this like thing that looks good like it really was a cold war so you know it's hard to explain to children I guess but definitely <laughs> definitely and um read in I think it was uh, Smithsonian magazine recently that I think 
at the peak of public support for landing on the moon in the 1960s, they said it's something like 40, 45%. I think probably closer to 40% of the American public were like, yes, we should absolutely right. spend money on going to the moon. So even then, it wasn't uh, as popular as yeah. we might imagine it being. Yeah, I think those numbers ago. went up as they approached the actual moon landing. So it'd be interesting to see. But I think like when they started the space experiment, when they announced that they were going to go to the moon, like when Kennedy did that speech, I think it was around those numbers. I have to look at the specifics. So... Definitely. Uh, so yeah, I guess we'll, we can just jump right into yeah. discussing uh, Apollo 11, but really there's there's no way to discuss Apollo 11 without the broader context yeah. of uh, the space race mm-hmm. and the technology that we created. And I think um, so, some of your photographs uh, with Kuiper in front of uh, Gemini space capsules is that was, a I think, an incredible, almost forgotten aspect of the United States space program yeah. that um, the landing on the moon would not have been possible w- yeah. without uh, some of the developments in Project Gemini and they, yeah. these tiny, tiny little capsules. I like the point that you made in your previous podcast about how it's like sitting in the, like a space smaller than the front seat of your car for, you know, potentially multiple weeks like that really hit home. Yeah. I think the um, longest flight that they did on Gemini was about two weeks. Yeah. yeah. In, um, and that was uh, Jim Lovell and, gosh, I can't remember. I think it was actually Frank Borman and Jim Lovell. I believe so. Um, it and it was because of their experience in space that they became um, part of the Apollo 8 crew. Yeah. But spending two weeks in a space smaller than the front seat of your car, and they said that um, Frank Borman and Jim Lovell did not have enough space to stretch out their legs. Oh, my gosh. So your their legs were permanently... Oh, my gosh. I think the thing I like about Gemini is just sort of, like, the human factor and all the little anecdotes about that, like smuggling a corned beef sandwich aboard or playing jingle bells in the harmonica, like, all the sort of little pranks that they did on each other that make it seem like... This wasn't, you know, 150% serious. Like, these are human beings, like, doing human being things. Like, mm. I think that's really neat. I think there, there's also a, such a human element to the American space program and to... Um, Apollo in the sense that Apollo 8 reads from the book of Genesis because yeah. to my understanding they, they were told uh, it's going to be the largest television audience in history so do something appropriate yeah. find something to say to mark the occasion and yeah. just kind of left it in their laps whereas... like, yeah I think if you look at um, the broadcast that they made that was actually a pretty small part of the program so they had I think it was 30 right. to 45 minutes and they actually spent most of that time sort of describing features that were on the moon so it was kind of a science lesson plus a Genesis reading mm. we only remember the Genesis part I guess definitely so, but you know no, they had kind of a little bit of everything that's a good point yeah. that's a good point um, but that was my Christmas card this year. It was my picture of Kuiper in front of Apollo 8. Oh, that's along fantastic. Along with Earth's picture. So I put them both on a card and mailed them out to a bunch of people. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, it's my understanding that um, the Apollo 8 uh, capsule is Chicago? Yes. It's at the Museum of Science and Industry Chicago. And they also have Mercury Aurora 7. Oh, um, wow. So I visited there with Kuiper. Um, they were really, really nice. Um, I also visited Adler Planetarium in Chicago, and they have Gemini 12. As far as planetariums go, Adler is, is great. I, I always like to reference uh, the Fisk Planetarium because I used to present there. Mm-hmm. But um, Adler Planetarium, I've, I've heard, yeah. is just very impressive. Yeah. Very impressive. It's very historical, too, which is always cool. Definitely. Um, and so I, I read some interesting things about Neil Armstrong and his historic words, you know, one small step for man, yeah. one giant leap for mankind. And that's, um, by all accounts, Armstrong's own um, doing, his own yeah. sort of creation, and didn't share it with very many people, if anyone, before uh, he landed on the moon. And they were talking about how uh, the Soviet Union 
if uh, they had landed on the moon first, it probably would have been a, a statement that was constructed by the Soviet government. Oh, sure. And that was very much the way their space program worked. Yeah. That, 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 that human element is very much there, but we're, we're only learning about it in retrospect. Yeah. Yeah, I saw in your in your podcast that he had written that down and given it to his brother. Yeah. kind of neat. And, and that was kind of his brother's contention. Yeah. Uh, which, I mean, we, have, we really have no reason to doubt him. Mm-hmm. But Neil Armstrong did kind of allude to in the past. They were like, oh, did you tell a lot of people? And he was like, no, I told no one before right. landing on the moon. So that was a, a very recent yeah. surprise that uh, we had. I, th- I think something we might have learned only after Armstrong's death. Wow. It's amazing how much we're still learning. Like, I think I saw something on the news the other day about how the command and service module didn't... Or the service module didn't quite separate entirely. And it was actually kind of at risk of running into them when they were doing re-entry. Like, it was a pretty close call. That's... Yeah, that's a fascinating subject. Yeah. And I, I read the same article yeah. where uh, the, the the service module being the um, component of the spacecraft that has all the oxygen and fuel cells to power the spacecraft and all, all of their supplies, basically. And then the command module is this t- the tiny little capsule, the only portion that enters the Earth's atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And I... Basically, the service module, when it separates, was supposed to be very, very far away. Yeah, like, it was as, not so far away. As you said, uh, the article I read had this this terrifying looking picture where it looks like a meteor yeah. with a bunch yeah, of I saw, chunks. I think it was probably the same article. Yeah, and you can mm-hmm. kind of see the uh, service module disintegrating in the atmosphere because mm-hmm. it wasn't meant to re-enter yeah. the Earth's atmosphere. And it could have. Um, they found out only weeks later after they had returned that it could have been um, deadly for the Apollo 11 it crew. It sounds like they had the same problem on Apollo 8 and Apollo 10. And they didn't have time to fix it before Apollo 13, so... But after Apollo 13, they, they managed to fix it. It was some switch that was misaligned or some, some instruction set that was wrong. Yeah, um, but it, it gives you an idea of just how many different moving parts... Oh my gosh. And how many things, I think, could have gone wrong. Right. I think people forget that there are so many close calls on... Oh my god, it's a miracle that we didn't have more catastrophes. Um, not just uh, on Apollo 11, but, you know, yeah. Apollo 12 was struck by lightning when they yeah. were launching on a Saturn V rocket. It's um, a testament to all the engineers and all the hundreds of thousands of people that went into designing that... Sure. I, I think yeah. conspiracy theories almost abound because uh, they made it look easy. Right. And there were there were so many successful Apollo missions that people are like, oh, we did we made this incredibly dangerous journey to the moon and people came back alive every single time. That seems far fetched. But yeah. there many- my favorite anti-conspiracy argument is if you go and look at the NASA archives, there are hundreds of thousands of technical documents online. So you can see for yourself that either we went to the moon or we did all the engineering necessary to go to the moon. And didn't go to the moon. So kind of the, the simplest choice there is that we actually went to the moon. So why would you go to the, the effort of engineering all of that and not actually use that work? Yeah, and, and we did a blog post uh, that was very interesting just talking about the geology of the moon rocks. Moon, yeah. uh, geologists from all around the world, including the Soviet Academy of Sciences, looked at these rocks and said, no, you, you can tell. Yeah. You know, crystallization structure, exposure to cosmic rays, like yeah. all these things that from geologists who had been devoted their lives to studying rocks on Earth, right. looking at something that is profoundly like different, yeah. very much from a different body in uh, outer space. And we still have those laser reflectors up there, don't we? Yeah, we... I believe that we we do that we've still we've done experiments where I we thought it would be fun to find like i'm sure there's some facility somewhere that still has lasers that have the capability of pinging those it'd be fun to like do a sort of in-person experiment yeah i've spoken fun. with people at the planetarium uh-huh. who have who have known people who have, who have done that experiment and that's um I, I think again conspiracy theories abound because uh, there are a lot of people in our society that to some extent are scientifically like illiterate yeah. so even the idea that we set up this little device 
on the moon that can we can bounce lasers off right. of. And it's not it's not a very big looking device. It no. looks like about the size of a large coffee table book. Right. Um, but they talked about that um, that couldn't have been placed there by a robot. That instrument really needed to be yeah. in 1969 needed to be calibrated by hand and yeah. set up by a human being. Um, so we watched from the Earth to the Moon, where yeah. they talked about how the create or we, and then That's, after watching it, we had the conversation about the Saturn V yeah, rockets um, themselves. Yeah, so not to cut you off, but yeah. uh, from the Earth to the Moon is an HBO special produced by Tom Hanks from the 1990s. Have oh, I, I don't it? think I've seen it. I'll have to put it on the list. Uh, yeah, I, w- I would definitely recommend okay. it. It's very well done, and a lot of people um, don't know a lot about it, but um, gives a very comprehensive overview of the different Apollo missions. Mm-hmm. I think this was right after Tom Hanks did Apollo 13, so he was kind of in a, a vintage space, you yeah. know, Apollo phase of his, yeah. his career and his uh, interest. But anyway, so you... Uh, Blake well, we had a conversation about, about Saturn five. How many Saturn V rockets they ended up making in preparation? Because uh, when you guys were talking about how crazy it is that everything kind of worked out and, yeah. and fell in sync, that we we actually ended up having. I think your estimation was that we had two more Saturn V rockets left over. Yeah, after and, and so, everything. Yeah, isn't one of them at Air and Space and one of them's at uh, U.S. Space and Rocket Center? So I don't think we, there's a full Saturn V at the Air and Space Museum in okay. Washington, D.C. I think... Um, I'm pretty sure there's a full one at U.S. Space and Rocket Center. And they also have a full-size model outside. Yeah, and so I'm trying to think. I think both the Houston Space Center and the uh, Kennedy Space Center have some sort of Saturn V hardware. Hmm. Um, but you talk about full-size models and all these other yeah. things. It's difficult for uh, me to, to remember specifically yeah. what's an actual Saturn right. V that's yeah. had its internal components scooped out sure. and they're displaying... An actual Saturn V, mm-hmm. and what's um, I'm pretty sure Huntsville has an actual one. Yeah, I think yeah. I think you're correct. I yeah. think you're absolutely correct. Um, and I think Kennedy Space Center does yeah. as well. Uh, but yeah, just just incre- absolutely incredible machine. And I was yeah. um, talking about so John Logston wrote this book uh, after Apollo that I've been reading, mm-hmm. and uh, John Logston is a very prominent space historian. And talked about, um, I believe it was James Webb was the administrator of NASA uh-huh. at the time. We were going to the moon. And he talked about, uh, I guess, ordered more Saturn Vs and more lunar modules and more command service modules than they than some people believed they would need. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think at, at the end of the day, this is why we, we ended up with extra Saturn V rockets left yeah. over that became, some of which never flew in space, and, and one of which became uh, Skylab, America's first space uh-huh. station. But that he ordered so many because in in his mind, there was no guarantee that Apollo 11 was going to land successfully on the moon. And then if they didn't, they wanted to be able to get something else going by before before 1970, launch at least one or two more missions and attempt it. And there was no guarantee that those missions would make it. So if they crashed on the moon or if they had to do an abort, just just this guy who was, you know, like you'd say pessimistic, but just probably pragmatic. I mean, if you look at the failure rates of the earlier rockets, I mean, it's... You can't assume that everything's going to go perfectly. Like, there's so many things that can go wrong. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's... I think that's really staggering. That, yeah. Um, and Neil Armstrong, Michael Collins, Buzz Aldrin, I think, have all given interviews where they said, oh, we thought we could... We had a 50-50 yeah, show. Yeah, isn't that amazing? It's... Speaking of Michael Collins, he recently set up an Instagram account. I don't know if you've seen it. It's, like, the most yeah. awesome thing I've ever seen in my life. It's just delightful. Like, he posts about, like, who made the worst jokes? Was it Neil or Buzz? And he was like, it was me. This is really adorable. <laughs> Yeah, he's uh, probably one of the more uh, down-to-earth astronauts. He really seems like a, a great guy. Yeah, and, and certainly one of the uh, 
the most uh, lesser known yeah. member of the Apollo 11 crew, yeah. which, which is really unfortunate because he played such a crucial role. And we tried to, in the formal episode, we tried to um, give Michael Collins a lot of attention yeah. rather than just mentioning him as a historical footnote. And For say, sure, yeah. He's still around and, you know, he has an increasing social media presence. It's kind of cool to see him do that and kind of reach out to the young generation. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, Buzz Aldrin, uh, no disrespect intended oh, to... Oh, not at all. Legendary. Well, amazing as well. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, people did feel like, in comparison to Neil Armstrong and Michael Collins, Buzz Aldrin had a little bit more of an ego and was a little bit more... It sounds like uh, he was more of an academic, you know? Yeah, I, it's hard to, to get a sense of who Buzz Aldrin was mm -hmm. because, compared to Neil Armstrong, he was more charismatic and he had more of an interest in being in the spotlight and, to this day, is a very much public face doing interviews and public events. Whereas Neil Armstrong, in comparison, was considered to be kind of reclusive. But yeah, um, Buzz Aldrin had a doctorate of, of sciences. His doc his uh, his doctorate was in like rendezvous maneuvers. Right, yeah. and and it earned him the nickname Doctor Rendezvous. Yeah. <laughs> so he was exactly who you would want, you know, on the piloting the lunar module. Yeah, and and yeah. It, it was funny to me. I, well, I guess Neil piloted the lunar module, right? So. And, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, um, Buzz Aldrin, it's something of a misnomer. He was the lunar module pilot, right. was, was on paper what you oh, call okay. that position. Is, he yeah. wasn't physically, right. wasn't Neil physically flying it? Yeah, it okay. was Neil Armstrong. Yeah. Who and it was always the commander who physically flew it. Uh -huh. And then you have command module pilot, which Michael Collins certainly was yes. piloting the right. command module. And lunar module pilot is this designation that confuses everyone. Okay, all right. Okay, I got confused for a second. Now that makes sense. All right. Because you for don't straightening that out. Yeah, you don't yeah. actually pilot the lunar module, but that's mm -hmm. what, if you like, what is what is your title on the mission? It's the right. module pilot. But I, I spoke with an aerospace engineer once who met Buzz Aldrin and just referred to him as Doctor Aldrin, which was which was funny because we don't we don't think of him as Doctor Aldrin yeah. or Doctor Buzz Aldrin, but that's you know that is the appropriate title for yeah. uh, someone in his position. Whatever he wants to be called is his appropriate title, you know. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Yeah, it's like Doctor and then astronaut. Like there should be a Doctor Astronaut Sir. There should Dr. be like an abbreviation for astronaut. Or Doctor like Astronaut Man. Like <laughs> Starman. Oh man. Moon dude. So um we had previously we did our three part space race, and then we did three after talks for the space race. And yet you still came up with something to commemorate Apollo eleven. So you have to commemorate Apollo 11. Of course, I mean, but there was a lot of content in the space race. So how did you? Because these were conversations that we were having while you were writing the episodes. Like, where did you find your niche? Yeah, and and maybe um, Beth can be, give us a critical review of the podcast. My hope was that I didn't retread too much ground from previous episodes that oh, we did about Apollo. Oh, I thought it was Apollo. awesome. I knew next to nothing about the Russian side of the space race, and I learned a lot from your guys' episodes about space history. I feel like that really filled in a lot of the gaps. Definitely. So. And so, but with this latest episode, it's like, how? what more can we say about Apollo 11 that hasn't been said by us or by, right. by others? Because it is um, so well known and is back in the public eye with the 50th anniversary uh, of the first moon landing, but hopefully some content in there that maybe people weren't previously yeah. aware of. Um, yeah, there were some things I learned from uh, from that podcast. Like, I didn't know that Apollo One has such a big influence on smoke detector um, development. Right. Um, Just now, I need to do more research about that since we're about. I've been doing a series of posts from Explorer One, our first satellite, to Apollo Eleven on my Instagram. We're about up to the Apollo One fire, which I've been kind of procrastinating because it's such a sad story. But you know, we're there on our timeline. But it makes sense that that would influence smoke detectors. 
Yeah, I think there there's just an enormous number of spin-off technologies yeah. that came from the moon landings. Yeah. And, and I don't think people make an economic argument enough that yeah. this... This was very much um, something that benefited us economically. Yeah. Jim, Jim Lovell writes about seven dollars return for every one dollar spent. Amazing? Yeah. So, um, and in, in addition to, uh, I would probably argue that just the science alone of of traveling to other worlds yeah. with humans or with robots is an argument enough to go. Yeah. Uh, but I think there are other people out there that don't share our enthusiasm for right. man space travel, human space travel. Yeah. I don't know. We're supposed to go back in twenty twenty four. I, I'm going to throw this out there. I don't think we're going to make it back by 2024. I think, I'm also a little skeptical. Um, I think maybe by 2028. Like No one would be happier than me if we landed on the moon again sure. in 2024 Absolutely. with human beings. But yeah. What else can we say about Apollo 11? Um, I, oh, I, Apollo 11 was the first mission they had coffee. So that's, that's something new. That's was, right. Of course, instant coffee, but that's presumably why they were so grumpy at Apollo 7 was because Apollo 11 was the first time they had coffee in space, <laughs> like including Mercury and Gemini. So there's your fun fact of the day. It, it was uh, my understanding that um, a lot of Apollo missions had hot water. Um, they um, had hot water on Apollo 7 was the first time they had hot water okay. at all, like for food prep is my understanding. Like they didn't have it on Mercury or Gemini. And so it's it's incredible to think uh, how comfortable, like in, in some ways we could go into the details of how yeah. uncomfortable it would be right. to, to fly for a week in something that, you know, if Gemini was smaller than the front seat of a, right. of a car, then you probably have about as much room in your average family car as yeah. you would have an Apollo 11. So a little bit, I think it... They had a little bit more amenities than in previous missions. Yeah, so they but... had hot and cold water. They didn't have freeze-dried ice cream because that wasn't a thing. It was never a thing. It's a lie. <sighs> Is it really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they never had freeze-dried ice cream in space. Even even shuttle astronauts didn't have... They had freezers. So they just had real ice cream. Oh, so, like, wow. astronaut ice cream is just real ice cream that wasn't freeze-dried. They just, you know, ate it like normal people. I guess the idea is you have little balls of ice mm -hmm. cream, then that's what it would look like if it were... You know, freeze-dried uh, ice cream is just a triumph of marketing. If, if, you, yeah, well, yeah. if you if you take your six-year-old to the museum for an afternoon, like he's not going to want to he's not going to want to go to the gift shop and get freeze-dried, you know, he's carrots. He's not going to want to be an astronaut who tries the freeze-dried ice cream. So. See, I never That's fell true. for that. I was, you know, you walk into the Discovery Store in, at the mall, like looking around for cool science things, and you saw the freeze-dried ice cream, and it was like, well, yeah. But I'm it's sure. called astronaut ice cream. How could it have never been in space, you know? It's, yeah. I, I didn't fall for lie. it. I didn't fall for it. <laughs> I confess that was something I did not know yeah. about ice cream. And the shuttle... I, I didn't also didn't know that the shuttle astronauts had real ice cream. I believe they had freezers on spacecraft as of the 70s, and they just had regular ice cream. Yeah, the, the shuttle mm -hmm. had a lot of amenities that mm -hmm. Apollo astronauts yeah. uh, didn't didn't really enjoy, including a bathroom, which would be... Ooh, a bathroom. ...would be very luxurious very for, <laughs> compared to previous... I think they had backup bags just in case, but... Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> It's uh, no, it's incredible to think about. But in some respects, um, to have hot food, to be able to um, get warm uh, hot water on dehydrated food, yeah, and to have I never tasted any of the Apollo food myself. Yeah. There were kind of conflicting reports. I think some people were pickier than others. I guess sounds like the bacon cubes were pretty good by all accounts. Interesting. I, yeah. gu I guess if uh, you're taking you're smuggling a corned beef sandwich onto a Gemini <laughs> mission, that that's that's some indication that yeah, you're unhappy with the that he was unhappy with the food. I think it, I don't know. Wally Sher was just kind of a silly guy it sounds like or, that's know, true yeah he, he did play a lot of pranks yeah, he was the so. one that, that put the sandwich in john young's pocket i think <laughs> that's incredible yeah so it was kind of like a he was in cahoots with john young it was like a kind of multi-astronaut prank is my understanding that's hilarious and they got it from a local deli too and i think for a long time the local deli was like advertising like where the gemini like sandwich hmm. place 
Unfortunately, they don't exist anymore. Otherwise, I was gonna try. I was gonna try and visit them. Oh, that would have been cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, the the Apollo 11 crew, it's kind of interesting to think about their dynamic because they were mm-hmm. kind of considered um, three amiable strangers. Yeah. And even um, there was some friction between Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong mm-hmm. of who was going to be the yeah. first person to walk on the moon. Mm-hmm. So you, you really wonder what what were their interactions look like. Of course, we yeah. have the transcripts we can look at of yeah. everything they said to each other on I mean, the way to the moon. You don't have to be best friends with your coworkers, you know, to do a good job at your job. So, you know. Yeah, and I, I yeah. think... but. Um, so there's uh, someone who's has a YouTube uh, channel, which you may have heard of, called Vintage Space. Yeah, I uh, love her. She's uh, fantastic. Uh, Amy Shira title yeah. is her name. Um, but uh, she actually asked, met Michael Collins in person. Oh, and, cool. And said at some point in the transcript here, uh, Neil Armstrong makes a joke about your underwear. And I know you guys wore long underwear under your spacesuits. And she said, I wanted to... Um, ask you what what were you, what were you guys talking about? Because it seems like you were kind of, it seems lighthearted and right. you, you were laughing. And Michael Collins, of course, trying to re- recall something that happened 47, 48 right. years ago, is like, gee, I really don't remember yeah. what we were talking about. He says, but I think we were just joking around, and and that was kind of like heartwarming to me yeah. that they weren't best friends, they weren't the closest of yeah. all the Apollo crews, um, but they were um, amiable, yeah. like oh, yeah. they were like um, excited to be taking part in something so historic. Um. One of my favorite things to do with, like, the old space transcripts is just to go through and search for laugh, and then you can see, like, how many times they'll put, like, laughter, and then see what they were talking about, sort of before and after. Like, they joked around a lot. We covered, um... Well, they're, they're both, they're two crazy worlds. They're yeah. both an engineer or doctor, or like, a, 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 a truly someone superior in their field, and they're also this kind of crazy, like... You know, PR marketing. person. Well, no, a person that's willing to go to space. Yeah. Um, but so like fighter, fighter jocks, you know, military test pilots, yeah. which is its own kind of culture of people who do yeah. play pranks on each other right. and have a sense of humor. And I assure you, after being in the military, that there is a, a there's gallows humor that definitely allows you to be able to get through like the potential that you know you might die while doing this mission. Wasn't so. Armstrong a civilian? Armstrong was a civilian. Now, it's, it's kind of strange to look at uh, Armstrong's career because he was a military fighter pilot uh-huh. um, very, very early on and then left the military, flew the uh, X-15 rocket plane, which was obviously this experimental military right. aircraft, um, but was not, I, I don't think in any sense, was uh, a member of the United States mm-hmm. military at the time he landed on the moon. And there were um, optics to that as well yeah. as not wanting oh, to yeah. end. Right, not wanting to have a military guy be like, the moon is ours now. But not yeah. very much separated. Sure, like, yeah. Definitely a civilian, but yeah. kind of like a civilian contractor sure, for yeah. the military. Yeah, yeah. There's some overlap there. I think I was reading that they had this whole deliberation about whether they're even going to put an American flag on the moon or whether it was going to be like a United Nations flag. Like there were like congressional hearings about this. I haven't dug into it very deeply yet. It's in, I thought it's, that was really interesting. It's very interesting to think about. And, yeah. and how I think it's very interesting to me that by most accounts, we don't know for sure, but by most accounts, the um, ultraviolet radiation would have bleached out right, the yeah. American flag. Right. So if we went back to the Apollo sites now, right. you would be seeing a lot of the hardware would look very much as it did in the 1960s. Yeah. A lot of it would be very well preserved. And you'd see footprints and you'd see all this equipment and and uh, i guess neil armstrong tossed out they had like one or two uh, hasselblad cameras that they took the film out of and tossed oh, wow. out because um they had 50 pounds of moon rocks yeah. so it was like all right let's toss out everything that we don't need yeah. onto the surface um 
there's also, this is a little gross, but there, there's also uh, several Apollo missions uh, throughout bags of feces. Yeah. And uh, scientists have subsequently said, like, it would be very interesting to see if there's any microorganisms oh still alive, like, on the moon. So we need to go... That's, that's an interesting academic question. Oh, I was reading Definitely. that uh, Buzz Aldrin, like, his, like, urine collector or something broke as he stepped onto the surface. Yeah. Yeah. So his, his boot was full of pee while they're on this, like, live TV yeah. podcast, so, which is so amazing. That was a detail that I... <laughs> I considered including in the Apollo right. 11 episode, but I thought, ah, maybe not. I don't think I knew that. Like, that's... Yeah, but... I came across that really, really recently. I think yeah, it was like the last couple of days. Just the idea that Buzz Aldrin, you know, historically becomes the second man right. to walk on the moon, and shortly thereafter, this urine collector bag um, bursts and, like, is has a boot filled, filled with pee and essentially yeah. has to go on, like, okay... Have to go on. I'm just going to pretend that this isn't happening because the president is watching. Exactly. See, that's the thing that I'm imagining. Like, he says something, laughter. Like, that's what I want to hear. Like, I'm I'm up to my knee in in a swimming pool right now. I think it it was a result of the the lander landing so softly because it didn't crumple. So they were at a higher height. So, like, that force on his, you know boot or whatever broke something in his face yeah that yeah. was that was something that we mentioned that was interesting and of course a lot of people have talked about neil armstrong being the greatest pilot of all time and of course against you know incredible odds yeah. with with almost no fuel remaining he lands on the moon yeah. but the way that you're supposed to land on the moon which subsequent crews right. did is you um you have these wires extending from the legs and then when the wires uh touch the ground, the contact light comes on, then you shut off the engine, right. then you fall um, to the ground and the legs crumple mm-hmm. and compress. And so um, a little bit scary to think yeah. about the fact that um, three or four feet doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're in this cumbersome spacesuit, when you're in the vacuum of space, yeah. when you're landing on a- another world for the first time, uh, Neil Armstrong actually uh, clearly was thinking about it because he, he gets down to the, the, the Lem foot pad and then he's like, I've checked it and it's sufficient to yeah. get back up. I can get down and I can get up. And looks like we'll be able to get back right. in. So that's um, important. So it really was a leap. It was more of a leap than they anticipated. Which is kind of amazing. One one giant leap to make that small step. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So, so what is the next the next thing that's going to happen in space travel in our future that will amount to the accomplishment that Apollo Eleven was? Do you do you have any thoughts on that, Beth? I don't know. I think it'd be cool to see people go to Mars. I don't think it's realistic it's going to happen in our lifetime, but something fun to dream about. It's funny. I'm also pessimistic that we'll get to yeah. Mars in our lifetime. I think, I think we have so many problems here on Earth that we need to work on first. So um, that That's something that a lot of people throw out, and maybe I'm just a little too radical in my support of, uh, of manned space travel, but uh, there's this guy, Robert Zubrin, who was kind of the main character of our Mars series. I say character. He's an aerospace engineer. He's probably a character, too, if he's an aerospace engineer. Oh, he's a character. <laughs> and, and he gives these um, congressional testimonies and interviews where he's kind of, like, glaring at the camera. And he, he was saying, you know, that we have the technology to do it. We need to make an investment. We need to... He's we have like, the technology to do a lot of things. We don't want to fund it, though. I mean... That's true. It, it is yeah. extremely expensive. But uh, he always says, you know, he like stares into the camera, kind of glaring at the the interviewer, and he, he says, people say that we have a lot of problems on Earth right now, and that we should focus on the problems we have on Earth rather than exploring space. And he goes, well, there were a lot of problems in Spain in 1492, and today, there still are. 
And I, you know, I think that's an, an interesting argument is absolutely yeah. make investments on Earth. Right. But I think some of the investments that we made in space, talking about smoke detectors, talking yeah. about microprocessors, yeah. that there were applications here on Earth. Oh, I yeah. Think. I'm not saying that we should just abandon space research entirely. And I'm not saying that, like, this because we have problems on Earth means that we should completely ignore it, you know. I think there's room for everything if we had economic policy that would include room for everything. But that's a whole separate discussion and probably a whole separate podcast. Sure. That's- <laughs> <laughs> that's that's definitely fair, and yeah. um, we we've talked about before um, this woman who uh, I met at the planetarium, yeah. Dr. Fran Bagnall, who worked on the Voyager space probe oh, as well cool. as the Juno space probe, mm-hmm. and she is just uh, very opinionated about saying she said several times uh, to me she said we don't need to be sending human beings to Mars, we don't need to be sending humans anywhere, we don't really need a manned space program at all or whatsoever that robots can do all the work. And so I I asked her, I said, you don't think we should have sent astronauts to the moon during the Apollo missions? And she kind of paused and she said, well, in the 1960s, robots could not do all the things that human beings could do. So it was vital to have human beings on the moon to conduct the science. But it was like a political decision. Like we didn't... Oh, sure. Sure. But as a... At the end of the day, you know. It was definitely purely motivated by politics. And science was more of an afterthought in in many respects. Well, like you said, they were going to like play the national anthem and do all these things. And they're like, hey, can we actually do more science instead of just standing there being like, we're Americans on the moon for the entire time that they're there. Yeah, definitely. Um, But I I think from her perspective as a scientist, she was like, no, she's like, I'm glad human beings walked on the moon. Because in the 1960s, like talking about that laser reflector, um, that a robot probably could not have set that up. And, And certainly... Um, we didn't really have uh, unmanned robots uh, advanced enough to bring back 50 pounds yeah. of, of lunar soil. Right. The, the, and I think uh, I think close to 800 pounds in all from all the Apollo yeah. missions together. And that's pay dirt for geologists. From... Think of how many kids that inspired to become scientists and engineers, too, just by the fact of virtue of having humans on the moon. Like that, this entire generation was inspired Absolutely. Science. Absolutely. Yeah. And we, we talked about the, the Sputnik crisis mm-hmm. was not just, oh, oh my God, the Soviets have <laughs> right? a, a satellite in space, but it Eisenhower was... Eisenhower was like, oh my God, you guys, it's fine. And Eisenhower... It's not fine. <laughs> well, and people, people thought Eisenhower was too cavalier. He's like, about... I've known about this for years. Like, why is everyone freaking out? It's just a satellite yeah it's just a radio transmitter you know we, it's just a beep everyone we, calm down our, our military is clearly superior very very much the way an old general would think about right. um space and we um, get all the contacts that like the rest of americans didn't have so. uh reading john logston's book after apollo it was very interesting to see that they said uh vice president nixon who was vice president yeah. under uh, eisenhower actually was far more enthused about space than yeah. eisenhower was you know to give give full credit where credit credit is due um but you talk about how dangerous the uh the space race was for the people yeah. going on the journey it's interesting to read this book after apollo because uh nixon talks about after apollo 13 he was so rattled by the fact that this crew almost didn't make it back to earth alive that he made made this aggressive um effort to cancel apollo 16 and 17 wow. um even after apollo 18 19 and 20 were wow. scrubbed um and it, it shows that he realized just how dangerous it was yeah it's a miracle that we got everyone back alive you know um, I, mean, I think Apollo 1 was a big wake-up call in a lot of ways, too. You know, redesigning everything to be much safer. and Yeah, absolutely. Know, having, like, firefighters on the on the pad, probably a good idea, you know? Yeah, that's definitely interesting to think about. Uh, just so so many people, so many moving parts, so many things that we had to, to think about. It yeah. is, and in some respects, if I'm looking for the silver lining, it's... Um, 
it almost makes sense that there are people who don't believe we landed on the moon right. because it is uh, such an amazing feat. Yeah, it's incredible. You almost have to expect that there will be people along the way who will say, it's too amazing for me to even believe. Yeah. Or, I mean, people also like to feel like they're sort of woke. You know, they're in the minority that's woke about something and they're, you know, oh, I'm I'm part of this small group that knows the real truth about this. Like, it makes them feel special, you know. The psychology of, of conspiracy theories or even just, you know, you mentioned the term right. woke, which is yeah. a very political um, term. It's just very interesting. Yeah. It's people people wanting to be able to say, like, I'm um, I'm privy to some higher level of knowledge. I'm not that, one of those sheeple. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the, the rest of you auto- mindless automatons right. don't really appreciate or understand. So, yeah, I, I guess I guess Mars would be the only thing that would really be comparable to landing on the moon. Because if we land on the moon again, yeah. historically, in 500 years' time, what's going to be the, the thing that stands out? The fact that the first time that we did it in the 1960s or the fact that half a century later we came back with more advanced technology and replicated the same feat? Yeah. I think it's still pretty cool that we're finding out more about exoplanets, that we're still getting information back from New Horizons. Like, the Ultima Thule thing was pretty damn cool. Absolutely. Can we say damn on your podcast? (laughs) Yes, you may. Yes, you may. Yeah. Um, I think I've even accidentally dropped uh, an F-bomb or two on previous... We we try not to get... It happens. I try to keep stuff on my page pretty PG. I learned how to bleep out a swear for the first time in my presentation video that I posted. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. Well, and who knows what the Jim Webb telescope is going to do for us. Yeah. That, that, that really opens up the different capabilities of what we're going to be able to detect that we couldn't with previous telescopes. Exoplanets is a fascinating um, tangent to go off on yeah. because I read an article that said uh, we might be getting to a point soon where we'd be able to see um, whether or not there's plant life doing photosynthesis on exoplanets because you could kind of detect it in the gases that are in the atmosphere. Dang, wow. So I think that would be um, an incredible moment for science to be able to say, yeah, there's definitely plants on this planet. Yeah, there's definitely enough plant life wow. to change the Only atmosphere. something that seems to be acting like it's photosynthesizing. Yeah. Right. That's amazing. Uh, even on Mars right now, um, the, the presence of methane on Mars is this very interesting... Wild? Yeah. yeah. So you followed that. Yeah. I watched the live stream where the NASA people were like freaking out and they're all excited about this discovery. It was really cool. Do you want to enlighten our listeners as to, as to why methane is such a big deal? Like, it's, I mean, it's typically the result of a biologic process, right? Yep. So. Yep. And so I think that I think that in some ways would be comparable. Certainly not in human spaceflight, but certainly in science and astronomy as a whole. Is, is it's an organic molecule. Yeah, we we yeah. may definitively confirm that there is life on Mars even before sending humans there. Yeah. That there might be or microbial that it may life. May have been at one time. Yeah, or that there may have been at one time, and that's that's Amazing. just as that would be just as profound yeah. to uh, to brush some dust off of a fossil, right? Like and snap a picture of it for the whole world to see. That's just amazing. So, yeah. I, again, what what is there to be said about Apollo that hasn't already been said? It's it's truly um, an incredible uh, testament to. You know, I, I could get yeah. very, I could get very, again, naive and very idealistic about it. humanity's drive to explore, but also, uh, I mean, there's kind of several layers of it. There is kind of like the, pro- I mean, I maybe propaganda isn't the right word, but it is inspiring and it is like exciting to think about like, Hey, we all came together and did this big thing. And then there's kind of the political, like, Oh, we were being the Russians, you know, there's the technological, we have all this research that came out of it. I mean, it's a very multifaceted thing. Well, and, and the, the drive to, 
do a lot of things in science and technology that haven't been done before and to aggressively pursue them and to make the investment of time, money, effort, scientific minds collaborating on the project. That is so... um, often driven by war, yeah. whether it's you know, the Manhattan Project would be an example yeah. and a lot of other examples throughout history. And, and even um, the V2 rocket, you know, the, really the first, do you think it would be historically accurate to say that was really the first rocket that sort of skimmed the edge of space? I don't know if it would, I would say skimmed the edge of space. I'm not sure what altitude it actually got up to. It's a good question. So mm-hmm. I, I think based on my knowledge, it did go above something called the Karam line, which mm-hmm. is this arbitrary distinction. About like 100 kilometers or so or... Yeah, and I'm so bad with distances. I want to say it's like over 50 miles above the huh. Earth's surface. And I don't know what that translates to in kilometers. Um, and, of course, it's just an arbitrary yeah, distinction. Yeah, for sure, yeah. Where we decide space and near space is, is, is completely arbitrary. But that's like saying that that's like the first motorized vehicle versus the Model T, where it's like there may have been other craft that made it up there, but this was mass-produced. And it was made in numbers that that are really hard to to like wrap your head around with I mean, them basically yeah. hollowing out mountains to be able to store and build these v two rockets in yeah, and the human costs ugh. yeah 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 and and Werner von Braun's an interesting He's so uh, complex yeah yeah def- complex yeah. is a great way to to think of him as being an enigma and even. Yeah. Um, apparently he had, you know, a Bible verse engraved on his tombstone and he was very, um, a a devout Christian by many accounts, but you also think like, all right, well, I immigrated to the United States and there's rumors about me being a ruthless, you know, Nazi who used slave labor. So what's the best way to rehabilitate my public image? Yeah. I don't know if we'll ever have the full story on, you know, we don't know what was going on inside his head, you know? Yeah. I I think I've, I've heard him described as not immoral, but amoral. Yeah. And that even with the V2 rockets... Morally flexible, perhaps. Morally flexible, (laughs) perhaps. Um, But even with the V2 rockets launching them, that he wasn't thinking about winning the war or killing English civilians, the the applications for space. Yeah. But I mean, the space program would unambiguously not have been the same without him. I mean, he was behind Lunar Orbit Rendezvous. He got to switch over to that idea. I I think he did a collaboration with Disney as well. Like, he did kind of... uh, He was kind of the brand ambassador for the U.S. space program collaborations with disney and did a bunch of marketing well disney has some weird ties too to to the germans as well well and even the the notion of walt disney being this kind of um sinister like anti-semitic sort of like character walt disney himself i've read some odd things about that some people were upset when the tom hanks movie saving mr banks i think came out because i think i want to say that it's tom hanks portraying walt disney as this jolly like piece of of americana Hmm. Um, huh. People are saying that's Walt Disney has this dark past that no one's acknowledging and blah blah blah. But um, yeah, I don't know enough about that to comment. Unfortunately, it's something I should look into. I, I it's should interesting. I yeah. shouldn't pretend like I know much about it yeah, either. Either sure, might, yeah. be, might be some Disney, Disney fans, some Disney files who are listening to this podcast know. who are getting. I think we can it. all agree that Space Mountain is the superior ride at Disneyland. Definitely. Well, yeah. things are starting to get a little bit more complicated nowadays with now all the new like little Star Wars, thing, Star Wars right? yeah. and everything else that's opening up. I. It's my fervent hope that like enthusiasm for space and space travel yeah. is on the upswing now. Right. We talked about in our um, Mars podcast that we've gone through these strange phases, at least in the United States and the Western world, where people become fascinated by Mars. They sort of get Mars fever. Yeah. 
Um, and then the excitement sort of dies down. And it, it's very cyclical that yeah. in the uh, 1990s with, um, I want to say that Pathfinder was the one of the first rovers that we sent uh, to, to Mars, one of the first things that had wheels it could like drive around. Um, so in the 1990s, especially we discovered a, a meteorite that may or may not have had Martian microbes and bacteria mm-hmm. in it. So um, I'd like to think that space is very similar in that regard, that we're going through cycles where, you know, the American public kind of less interested in yeah. it and it's kind of fades into the background and times where... There are bigger concerns, you know. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Well, and I think, I think things will change. And we've had this conversation in past episodes, Chris, about um, private space industry making an enormous difference. Um, oh, yeah. Blue Origin, I think... It has been very quiet about their uh, commitments yeah. and the things that they're working on. And I think their near future is going to be really interesting about what they accomplish because they are looking at building uh, motors and rockets that are make the m- most of what we built in the past 50 years pale in comparison. Yeah. Um, yeah, they, they've described it as Elon Musk is kind of waging a blitzkrieg where he ever, he wants to do everything in this very, very aggressive timetable as soon as, as possible yeah. and is very, very much good at generating publicity and excitement and enthusiasm, yeah. whereas Blue Origin is methodically going step like, by step, this yeah. building this enormous space infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think the problem is you talk about how expensive it is going into space. And so I think... patting ourselves on the back a little bit i'd like to think that um the publicity of it and the the public face of that is very important like moving forward to sell taxpayers or investors or whomever well we may also see more crowdfunded projects in the future as well i don't know if you guys follow the progress of light sale 2 it was crowdfunded by about forty thousand people um, for the planetary society and as bill nye says one dog Hyper made it into their video about the Light Sail 2 launch. Oh, that's cool. So I made him really? a Bill Nye costume, and they put it in the video. That's Bill fantastic. Yeah, wow. it's pretty neat. That's quite yeah. a claim to fame for Kuiper. Yeah, but Light Sail 2 was crowdfunded, um, so that was supported by the members. I mean, obviously, the rocket was not crowdfunded. There was a Falcon Heavy going up with a bunch of other projects, but the, the Light Sail 2 project itself was crowdfunded. So. Carl Sagan said something very interesting in one of his episodes of Cosmos, you know, the 1980... It was like know. Sagan's baby. It was his idea... Um, yeah, yeah, the, the, the light, the light sale. sale. Yeah. yeah. So, um, he, he had talked about that in the past, but uh, you talk about crowdfunding yeah. and that made me think of, I think he talked about the Voyager space probes and he said, if every human being like in history, like if every human being alive on earth right now had contributed to the yeah. funding of the Voyager space probes, which obviously wasn't how it worked, you know, right. as an American project, he says, but if every human being in history contributed to it, then looking at, uh, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and their moons, and the knowledge that we got that it cost about a penny a world for, for every human yeah. being on Earth. Now we have a lot more people. Yeah. And so um, that's an interesting angle that it might yeah. not be major corporations or yeah. um, or, gov- or governments. I would still put my money on Amazon for for coming out. Like, you know, everyone, they're the big corporate overlord, but yeah. they're... I've just I have a distinct feeling, and this is feelings and not not facts. <laughs> sure. And the um, speculation now. Yeah. Well, I, there's just it makes you wonder with all the money that Amazon makes, if some of that, like a, a pie of that, 
is either equivalent or greater than the equivalent of what, what the NASA budget is that's going towards Blue Origin. I don't know. I like to think that Jeff Bezos has like a Scrooge McDuck vault and he just like dives through it. I mean, wouldn't you if you're? A <laughs> I mean, but but so my my all my only interest is that we feel that way now, but then when we see what he comes out with yeah. with whatever he's doing with this rocket that's supposed to be yeah it'll be interesting to see what crazy happens. to blow people away if that'll in the end uh be worth you know if, if that fruit will be worth the squeeze when i saw that bezos um i don't think as part of like blue origin but bezos himself sponsored the apollo 11 exhibit that's uh, traveling around the country right now yes he, he did yeah well if i'm not if i'm not mistaken i think it was jeff bezos who like put up the money to fish the uh, engines, That's the correct. F1 engines, yeah. out of the Atlantic Ocean. have that Ocean. on display at the Museum of Flight. It's really cool. Yeah. And it was quite a project because yeah. they, they were in a fairly deep portion of the Atlantic yeah. Ocean to yeah, go down there. Yeah, it was a non-trivial project. Yeah, to go down there and, and pull them out and retrieve them. So all of that to say, it's very easy to, to like, Amazon is, is, is an evil corporate overlord, but there's these small, interesting little projects that the government would have had no interest in yeah. doing and this weird entrepreneurial... Scrooge McDuck is yeah. going down and, and solve it or not solving, but like doing these cool little independent projects. And I, I think don't that's, mean that he's like Scrooge. I just mean that he probably has like a swing. I'm not saying you are. Yeah. <laughs> I'm saying a lot of people yeah, say that. Sure. Um, and, and that's been, there've been a lot of complicated men in history, like Carnegie mm-hmm. or, you know, you name another. I think everyone's complicated. I mean, right. We tend to oversimplify it for children. Like, oh, this good guy did this thing on this one date. But yeah. It's so much more complicated than I, that. I think There's that, always more context. I think that's a good way to look at history is, yeah. is not to say that this guy was the bad guy or this guy was the good guy, yeah. even though it's, it's certainly within the, nar- the narrative of a podcast, it's easier right. to break people down that or way. Or like a history class in middle school or high school or whatnot, you know. Yeah, definitely, but there there has to be a lot of nuance in looking yeah. at. You have um, to look at the context, like what led them to make those decisions. Yeah, and and even you why know, didn't they value human beings? <laughs> yeah, and even talking about uh, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins without having met them, without like knowing them yeah. personally, how how do how do we really say that this is what right. his personality was like or not like? And Neil Armstrong was known for being very serious, which yeah. is why it's all the more interesting going back to. Um, Amy Shira titles question to Michael Collins. You know, it's very interesting. These people who we thought of as being so serious that Michael Collins and Buzz, uh, no, Michael Collins and uh, Neil Armstrong were kind of joking around with each other. That, yeah. that by all accounts, Neil Armstrong did have a sense of humor. Yeah. He wasn't always serious like, right. all, and focused like 100% of the time. Yeah. So they're human beings is what you're saying. Yeah. Turns out. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> a big shock. Yeah. Right. right? Um, you talk about crowdfunding. Um, this is just a, an obscure yeah. sidebar that I thought was interesting. So I was a political science major, came from that background. We generally don't get too political on our podcast. Sure. But uh, one of the uh, historic things about Barack Obama's campaign for presidency in 2008 was the fact that they said uh, it was a rare campaign where individual donors made up a tremendous amount of money. Kind of like what Elizabeth Warren's doing now. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, that, that, but that's like in politics is very um, atypical. That yeah. generally what we see in politics is big corporate donors. And well, the, like a the small, laws have changed significantly in the past 20 years. Definitely. So, yeah. is, is like a small number of people making these enormous contributions, yeah. which is kind of like. Well, Citizens United, like it's changed significantly. Yeah. Citizens so, United, yeah. It, we're, we're told, kind of opened up uh, the floodgates. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, how interesting it was that um, one candidate ended up having an enormous amount of money and Barack Obama had an enormous amount of money in 2008 mm-hmm. 
from individual donors yeah. sending in two, three, four, right. five dollars like to his campaign. Yeah, which... it's amazing what people can do in aggregate. Like just a few bucks goes a long way. So and so, yeah, yeah. That's that gives me some optimism for yeah. for the future. What right. you know, whatever your politics might be, it's an, a historical example of yeah. you can if you have enough people behind you. Yeah. Sometimes all it takes is an enormous number of people saying, yeah. "I can afford two or three bucks." Yeah. It yeah. takes a good idea and then a way to put it into action, mm -hmm. basically. And good marketing, so people know yeah. you have an idea. Yeah, yeah. I think so much of it comes back to marketing. Oh my is, gosh, is... everything is marketing. Yeah, yeah. and and that uh, we we probably I'd like to think understand that a little bit better because mm -hmm. we're trying to market our brand as you're sure. trying to, to yeah. market yours right. and, and get people excited about it yeah. and interested about. It. Um, Elon Musk, we talk about on one of his podcasts. His engineers were very irked that um, he was while he was demanding them to build this state of the art rocket for the first time in the early days of SpaceX. He was also saying. On the side, I want you to build a giant full-scale model of the mm -hmm. rocket that we could put on the back of a truck and drive all around the country. Right. And it kind of pissed, the, pissed them off a little bit because they were like, as if we don't have enough to do, you right. want us to build a giant model. But uh, but Elon Musk is very much aware of you know just putting this stuff in the public yeah. eye and getting people excited and yeah. not just saying... Personally, I feel like he's such an outlier that we can't necessarily look at him and be like, oh, this is how to be a marketing success because he's such an outlier. Like, he already had that success. Sure. So, if that makes sense. Sure. Not and to, like, you know, hmm. rag on what he's doing and everything. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. and he was very close to failure many yeah. times. So, I think Elon right. Musk himself would, would admit that, like, there, there were there was an element of right. luck involved where yeah. he could have easily failed and we fallen into obscurity. We can end up obscurity. with confirmation bias as well and say, hey, that worked for him. It may not work for anybody else, you know. Yeah. Definitely. Hindsight's always twenty twenty. For sure. And luck is definitely involved in oh my things gosh, like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and, and they said that um, just uh, creating, a lot of billionaires had this fantasy yeah. of creating their own aerospace corporation mm -hmm. that's going to send people to space and revolutionize space travel. And so many people tried and failed yeah. again and again and again mm -hmm. that it was not a safe bet when yeah. Elon Musk, and he almost failed himself. Yeah. So um, the future's evolving and the future of space travel is certainly going to look very different uh, than the past in many respects. Yeah. So what other topics should we cover? You've listened to most of our, our shows. Um, I must confess, I've only actually listened to probably four or five episodes. Totally fine. Um, if, if you were going to write an, or pick a topic for our next episode, what um, do you think is something that's really... I think it might be fun to go back even further and look at the history of aviation, like the history of flight from the beginning. Because I think mm -hmm. you guys picked up somewhere around Mercury or so, or maybe kind of World War II leading up to Mercury, and maybe go back in time and look at, you know, the first aircraft and that sort of thing. Yeah, um, that's that's yeah. a really good uh, that suggestion. That might be kind of out of the scope of what you guys wanted to focus on. But... Even, um, you know, Robert H. Goddard, though, like, yeah. contributed enormously. Absolutely. And um, one of the things, I, I don't think I ever put this in our podcast, but uh, it was fascinating to see that uh, Werner von Braun met with all these Americans when he got to the United States yeah. who said, you've done incredible things, you're clearly a genius, you know, we're blown away by the technology that you've created. And he said, well, he says... Most of us in our early days were looking up to American rocket scientist right. Robert H. Goddard and all yeah. the things he did with liquid-fueled yeah. rockets. And that was like 1912, I yeah, think. Yeah, somewhere around there. Um, I think and, you got the decade right. And I think uh, Robert H. Goddard, as early as 1920, mm -hmm. calculated, like, you could, if you had a big enough liquid-fueled rocket, you yeah. could send it to the moon, which is which is very striking. So there yeah. are, um, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky is kind of the Russian equivalent of Robert H. Mm -hmm. Goddard. So there are a lot of people who were thinking about this for a long yeah. time. Um, I'm thinking about, uh, we should have a blog post out by the time, uh, 
this after talk airs where I, I encountered a fascinating question the other day and it was um who's the first person to conceive of human beings traveling to the moon that's a really great question it's a fantastic i mean question. i'm sure it predates even um jules verne maybe yeah and jules verne was you know the 1800s yeah. I, I think um i found an interesting quote from kepler where he said something along the lines of and i'm paraphrasing here um if we have ships that can sail you know the heavenly breezes then surely there will be people um willing to fly aboard those ships and so it was it was on people's minds now probably kepler was a little bit more forward thinking than most most people in the 16 and 1700s but oh i learned from your podcast that the columbia module was partly named after jules verne yeah i didn't know that before i listened to your podcast that was fascinating to me that uh that jules verne was the influence for columbia yeah. because you think of the united states of america and right. how the word columbia has so many tie-ins yeah i think i learned recently that the columbia was the first um seafaring vessel to navigate around north america oh, or something I, I need to look up the uh the history of the, yeah. the ship columbia the sailing ship Columbia. didn't you also say that that's the reason why they're called ships is because of columbia like spaceship naval ship that kind of thing yeah there's an interesting naval tradition in terms of um i you know i don't i think spaceships is a word that existed even in science fiction Hmm. um long before but um the naval tradition i think essentially that we talk about in the podcast is it's a naval tradition for the commander to be first to go ashore yeah and so they were they were thinking of Apollo Eleven very much as a naval ship right, to some extent. You know, you're in port on the moon, effectively. <laughs> yeah. You're docked. Yeah, it's it's strange it's strange to think about it in those uh, contexts. And then of course we talk about I I always thought this was funny that um, the when you had uh, NACA the national was it national aviation it was the forerunner to NASA yeah. but NACA was very much had a military component. Yeah. Um, to it, so you, you had uh, different branches of the United States are uh, United States military having yeah. arguments about uh, the funny mm-hmm. funniest thing. Uh, we talk about this in our War in Space episode where they had an argument where uh, the United States Navy said they're called spaceships and the Navy needs to have control over the ships in our arsenal, regardless of where those ships are going. You can't see my eye rolling on the podcast, but I'm eye rolling right now. <laughs> That's amazing. And and um. The, the argument went on and on, like the Air Force was saying, like, if you, if we're flying in space and talking about space flight, then the Air Force Where has was to... this? Because I, I need to look this up now. I believe it's uh, it's a book by uh, author George Dyson All right. called Project Orion. I'll have to look this up because that's hilarious if that's an actual... Project Orion was actually um, this really obscure military project to build a nuclear-powered spacecraft. Oh, interesting. And that's a very obscure chapter that I could go on and on about. Oh, you mean of... nuclear-powered manned spacecraft? Because we have lots of uh, nuclear-powered... Good point. Know, the... Good point. I, sh- I should yeah. be more specific. Yeah, it was a, a nuclear-powered manned yeah. spacecraft. And they wanted to do uh, something called nuclear pulse propulsion, where you're essentially detonating... <laughs> exactly where you're detonating much more dangerous than yeah. say the nuclear technology used on the voyager space program oh yeah that was is, just heat yeah just make a lot of heat which is which is relatively yeah like safe mm-hmm. even though there are there are definitely people who are opposed to use of nuclear technology in any kind of yeah. unmanned spacecraft but um nuclear pulse propulsion you detonate um nuclear explosions behind a spacecraft and 
pushing it forward, yeah. um, pushing it forward at greater and wow. greater speeds. And they said with a if they had a one thousand ton steel plate behind it, that would serve to protect the astronauts 1, on the other ton. side. How are you going to get a one thousand ton steel plate up there? Like that's. Well, so the, the ludicrous part about it is they were going to launch from the ground because they said this will put out a half a megaton of fallout, uh, nuclear fallout, whereas we put out 100 tons of nuclear fallout every year with all the nuclear tests that we're doing. This was in the 1950s. And so they said, so what's half a megaton more oh if we... And so they could have launched uh, wow. a 4,000-ton vehicle with nu- little nuclear bomblets being dropped out the back. Um, wow. Very, very bizarre and obscure sort of... And it's really interesting to see all these proposals for things that didn't end up happening, but, you know... Yeah. I was just to think about that. Yeah. But um, the uh, the end of the story was the United States Army got involved and said, uh, once we land on the moon, the moon will be the ultimate high ground of space. And so the United States Army has always been about occupying the strategic high ground. I mean, the Russians got there first, technically, so... That's true. To, um, mm-hmm. to the moon with robotic... Yeah probes mm-hmm. that's something i think a lot of people don't, don't know yeah i learned that the cosmosphere good job cosmosphere yeah I, I like the fact that um so i haven't been to any russian museums unfortunately of like which, in russia or do you yeah. mean like cosmosphere no of okay. russian museums yeah. um but i like the fact that a lot of the american museums that i've i've been to were never shy about um displaying russian yeah um space i think yeah the cosmosphere has quite the collection of, of soviet artifacts um museum of flight has a soyuz capsule as well it was one of the ones that was flown up to the international space station and it would be it would be very easy um to say well of course they have uh, some they of course you have to talk about in a museum you know mm-hmm. the co- contribution of russians and soviets you know throughout history uh but at the same time america is very nationalistic rah, rah. we could we could very yeah. easily like be like Leave, leave that out. It definitely depends on the museum. I think there is kind of a, I don't want to say a different narrative, maybe a different focus if you go to the Smithsonian versus like the Cosmosphere. So you see kind of different sides of the same, not different sides, but kind of different aspects of the same story, if that makes sense. Sure. It's not like either of them are like incorrect or anything. It's just they tend to focus on different things sometimes. Different yeah. theses. Yeah. They have a thesis yeah. and then they have the supporting documentation for I, what they want. I do right. think I mean, though, not, not conflicting necessarily, just kind of different focuses. So. Right. I do think there are Russian museums that I've seen where you, you see a, an occasional uh, Gemini capsule or something yeah, in the background. Yeah, they have some of their our spacecraft and we have some of theirs. I don't think Russian has any, I don't think they have any of our flown spacecraft. They might have some of our like test yeah. capsules and stuff. But um, yeah. n- nice to know that... Um, Maybe someday yeah. you can you can you and Kuiper can visit some of the Russian museums. Yeah, I'm but not stepping anywhere near Russia at the moment. So probably probably for the best. Yeah. But um, but you know, kudos to them for uh having at least some exhibits on American spaceflight yeah. technology. Mm-hmm. And um, it's my hope that uh, space travel can be something that's um something that everyone on yeah. Earth can kind of participate yeah, in, and that people can can feel represented. Yeah. Whether well, I think Apollo Ten is in London, so. Huh. And we have spacecraft in different places all over the world. It's interesting to look at. Um, there's a, a list, I think, on a, there's like a Wikipedia page that yeah. shows where every single Apollo capsule, mm-hmm. flown Apollo capsule, yes. ended up mm-hmm. after um, after its historic mission. Yeah, most of them in the U.S. So yeah, definitely, and and all scattered across America's heartland, yes. the Kansas Cosmosphere, yep, and we um, have thirteen. Um, and what is this? The is it just called the Stafford Museum? In... The uh, Stafford Air and Space Museum in Weatherford. In Weatherford, yeah. Oklahoma. Yes. Fantastic. Yeah, they have Gemini 6, technically 6A, I guess. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. So who else should we have on? Oh, man. Who else would be a great guest for us to interview? Of course, we could talk about all the living Apollo astronauts that yeah. we would, would die to get an interview with. Oh, we, my gosh. We actually, uh, as of right now, we're waiting to hear back. Uh, we sent a letter to, a handwritten letter to Charlie Duke. 
Oh, cool. Charlie Duke. You should talk to Leland Melvin. He might be willing to do an interview. That would be interesting. Um, He seems to be really personable. I talked to him on the internet a little bit. I sent him a couple dog collars. He's the astronaut that had the two dogs in his official portrait. He snuck his dogs into NASA. I've seen that. I've seen that. Yeah. That's fantastic. He just seems like a good guy. So, I don't know. Maybe he'd be willing to give his time. I think he's retired from NASA. He basically just sort of does education stuff now, as far as I know. So, you should contact him. Yeah, there's there's a large number. He's um, on the shuttle. He's not as old as the Apollo era astronauts. It, it's so. incredible to me how old some of the shuttle astronauts yeah. are when, when you yeah. keep in mind that there were people flying the shuttle in 1980, 1981. Yeah. But and all the way up to 2011. Yeah. All the way up till 2009. I think he was like 2008, 2009, something like that. Um, so pretty but, recent. But um, the, the first shuttle commander on STS 1. Um, the, fir- the first shuttle flight into outer space was, um, I'm so bad with was names. It John Young? John Young, Yeah, yes. I mean, they had corned beef. That was the first appearance of corned <laughs> beef since Gemini 3. That was my useless fact of the day. Well, I'm, I, I'm, lear- I'm learning some interesting things, like, like the coffee on Apollo. Right. Like, that would be yeah. very interesting if, if you were a coffee drinker, if you drank coffee every morning yeah. and suddenly, all right, this is the most important mission of your career, go up there yeah. and, and you're going to have to cut coffee out. If I remember Correctly, I think NASA thought that astronauts had like a, a bigger problem with space sickness than they did, and it turned out to be caffeine withdrawal for the early missions. Wow. Yeah, I'll have to look up the statistics of that. I'm pretty sure. I That's incredible. That. Yeah, so they thought that they ended, all ended up with headaches, but it turns out they just had like normal caffeine withdrawal. Nothing was That's funny. Really wrong, so. we, we talked about, uh, and I guess caffeine yeah. withdrawal for some people can be really pretty oh, awful. Yeah, absolutely. No, thank you. Stick to my caffeine addiction. I, I don't drink coffee every day, so I don't I don't know the the pain yeah. of that. Um, it's I, rough. It's I, rough. I, I told yeah. I told someone um, the other day that that I thought um, I was looking at some of the Apollo astronauts and I just just imagining them yeah. as these larger than life legends. And I right. thought to myself, um, I probably don't. I'm not in good enough physical shape. I don't eat healthy enough. Right. Like I'm not strong enough. Not in, like, like perfect physical and mental health. Like yeah, and yeah. I just think like oh, I could never be an astronaut. And I saw an interview with Buzz Aldrin, who actually writes in his own book that he struggled with um, being an alcoholic later on in yeah. life. And it's he like ta- imposter syndrome happens to everybody, which is yeah wild. Yeah, and and I think um, he talked about. I think the title of his one of his books was about like coming back to earth or back yeah. to earth or something and he said that that was the dad was a jerk to him too so that probably didn't help his dad was a very prominent yeah. um figure as well you know big, dad, big like, shoes to fill i think his, his dad like didn't like that he was the second man on the moon he like made fun of him a lot and like made him feel really awful is my understanding <laughs> that's incredible yeah. <laughs> that's wow incredible. yeah but his, um yeah his buzz aldrin's dad was a nice person as far as i know I don't know if you want to edit that out. You want to complicated characters. That. Yeah. Going back to complicated exactly. characters, yeah. character right. people. So you know, there's like you know, you know, probably reasons behind all that stuff. Yeah, definitely. But what I was going to say, what what really blew my mind, you know, we talk about going through caffeine withdrawal, yeah. and it's something that the astronauts just had to deal with yeah. and do their jobs. Um, but Maybe they started sending caffeine pills. I don't know. But yeah. they had amphetamine pills, so like the first. Uh, it might be even better the than first a good medi- cup of coffee. The first medication taken in space was dextroamphetamine on one of the Mercury missions. I did not know that. Yeah. Um, did you know Alexei Lanov, the first uh, spacewalk, apparently had, we learned very recently that he had a suicide pill inside of his suit in case oh he couldn't, couldn't get back in. Wow. Uh, none of the Apollo crews carried suicide pills. That we know of. Um, no. that well, we, they probably yeah, didn't. That we know yeah. of. Just uh, being extra, it seems like it'd be a liability because if that opens up accidentally or something. Like, definitely. It seems like it's safer to not have that. Did but they if have handguns space, though? Um, well, the Russians had handguns. Oh yeah, because of bears, right? Like, because they were doing land landings and, yeah, not and water th- landings. And I think you, yeah. I think you actually uh, heard that episode that we, we talked so, about. Yeah. One, I didn't know that until I. One yeah. episode, they they're like, "All right, get the guns, start building a fire." Didn't like, they actually have to use it at one point, or like? 
like they almost they saw a bear they almost had to use it yeah i think they almost had to use it i don't think they shot any bears they got big bears there they don't have any of the wussy little black bears that we have here that's true careful what you call a wussy black bear well compared to a grizzly you know Sure. Oh, sure. you're just saying in the state? No, I mean, yeah, where they were landing, they probably well, had the some wa- pretty the serious wilds bears. Of, the wilds yeah. of Siberia, yeah. the wolves and bears you encounter there are, right. are a little terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> but um, all, all I was going to say, what I thought was interesting about Buzz Aldrin, uh-huh. you, know, you talk about going without some of the comforts like coffee that we associate. Um, I imagine the, the Apollo astronauts as being these you know, people in perfect physical condition. Right. And the interview, I swear I saw an interview with him somewhere where he says, well, I stopped smoking my tobacco pipe about about a week before we left. Because oh I because I didn't want to have to worry about, about that. And I wanted my wow. lung capacity to be really strong when I was flying in space. And he says, and then I stopped, uh, stopped drinking whiskey completely about three or four days before uh, the Apollo 11 launch, you know. <laughs> I think they brought Brandy along on Apollo 8 as like a surprise Christmas gift. So, you know, they sometimes had some booze in space. And well, Aldrin so- brought the communion wine, too. Yeah, yeah, definitely, and and that kind of uh, made made me wonder if he had an ulterior motive for bringing bringing wine to the moon, but um, the uh, Apollo Eight brandy mm-hmm. is is an interesting uh, anecdote because I, I learned very recently that um, oh gosh, what's his name? Frank Borman, the commander of Apollo Eight. Was, I love the story of Frank Borman. He was just this this West Point graduate who seems just so serious, and it's it's very telling about Frank Borman's personality that on his uh, Gemini mission with Jim Lovell, that Jim Lovell and him get get off, get out of the capsule, and they're walking around the aircraft yeah. carrier waving to people. And Jim Lovell, his hair's kind of tussled. He has right. this five o'clock shadow. They because stink, you know. Yeah, exactly. But Frank Borman, looks like, it looks like his hair's been combed. He's <laughs> clean shaven. And he's like, I'm going to be ready in front of the cameras. Ca- <laughs> yeah. Ready for the cameras. Just a, a true West Point, yeah. like tightly wound. I think my favorite thing I've heard about uh, Frank Borman was that he said if he got chosen for Apollo 8, he wasn't going, when it, wasn't going to go on future missions because he wanted to spend time with his family. Like, he didn't want to have, like, he's like, my family is worried enough. Like, I don't want to have to put them through that again. I am retired. So Ab- it just makes absolutely. him seem like a good guy. That Yeah, it's incredible. And I think yeah. it, it speaks to what we were saying earlier, the the dangers yeah. of flying in outer space that he was yeah. very acutely aware that Apollo 8 was such a risky mm-hmm. mission that he was like, like if I've I, had my time thank you if yeah if I make it back alive right. like be, best not to push my luck yeah. and continue doing this like yeah. I've, I've had my that's like a said, really cool like story just to hear him putting his family first so. and it's very rare it's yeah, very rare yeah I mean maybe that's why it sounds so cool <laughs> you, you know you don't hear about that usually so and uh, incredible that the Apollo 8 crew are all still alive. Yeah, isn't that... That's amazing. And, and I've been told that, um, without naming any names, mm-hmm. that some of the original astronauts from the space race, um, a few of them are still doing public appearances, but, like, many of us, when we get to the age of oh, yeah. 80 or 90, like, there's some cognitive decline, yeah. and people who see them are very much yeah. aware that there's... When you there's... don't want them to be in public after, you know, you don't want to tarnish that image of being, like, an American hero. It's got to be really tough. Definitely. So, yeah. And, and, you know, just because there's some yeah. cognitive decline there doesn't right. mean that they're, they're oh, not yeah. still, you know. For sure. Um, but I, I've been told that at least uh, Jim Lovell is this, one of the oldest original uh, Apollo That's astronauts. Awesome. But, but is very much um, just very mild-mannered, very yeah. polite, very kind That's old awesome. man. And sharp, though. Yeah. Like, yeah. And because I saw an interview with him, like, probably six months ago. Uh-huh. Totally, could Michael tell Collins stories. seems pretty damn lucid. I mean, like, yeah. or at least whoever's running his social media accounts is doing an amazing job. Oh, yeah. I, I, Michael Collins, I think, still yeah. does uh, marathons or half marathons, wow. and you can kind of see when when you see him, he looks very fit for yeah. for a man in his like yeah. mid eighties. It's like, oh, okay, there's there's a good indicator of like prolonged 
longevity, just stay yeah. decently in shape. Um, the one Frank Borman story that I was going to tell, though, talking about coffee and alcohol in space, was that they they found these brandy bottles that Deke Slayton, the head of the astronaut office, mm-hmm. who became an astronaut himself later yeah, on. Yeah, he has his own amazing story. Um, he snuck these brandy bottles in there, on, and they told him about it on Christmas, and found it, found it on their, in their food packets. Mm-hmm. And Frank Borman, this is very illustrative of Frank mm-hmm. Borman as well, said... Um, he said, you guys are crazy if you think I'm going to let you drink those during the mission. <laughs> That's amazing. And, and he, sa- he said, you know what they would say? He says, mm-hmm. if, uh, he says if anything went wrong, he says, regardless, say it was because of, that. Yeah. regardless of whether it was our fault yeah. or not, they would say they're getting drunk up there in space. He wasn't wrong. Yeah, he wasn't wrong. So. Can you pour a bottle? Like, if you have a glass bottle of brandy. I think you'd have to suck it right out of the bottle. Yeah, you like have, a, like you a baby you have bottle. to have a straw, right? right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Fluid dynamics is interesting. Maybe you can just like move it away from you and yeah. chase after it. Well, it'd be like a ketchup bottle, yeah, right? Where right? you like you'd have to hit the side <laughs> of the. Damn it. <laughs> Fluid dynamics in outer space is fascinating to think about because they've said astronauts have talked about if you cry in space, it just kind of mucks up your eyes. Yeah, yeah that it's an irritant because your your teardrops cling to yeah. like the surface tension of your eyeballs. They don't run down your yeah. face or come at like. I think they've portrayed that really interestingly. In of like fiction works like i know uh mary robinette kowal has written these lady astronaut books and she mm. interviewed a ton of astronauts and like tried to reproduce all of that as, as accurately as possible who's the author uh, her name is mary robinette kowal okay she's cool so i'd have to like plug her on her podcast she might be willing to do an interview with you I, that'd be great too we would love to yeah, have her she's so, like she's a really cool person she is a puppeteer she's like she's, she's a really us. interesting lady and writes nonfiction about it is female fiction. astronaut. Oh, fiction. It's an alternate history of this uh, 50s and 60s space program. That sounds it's, worthy of a, an yeah. entire podcast. The, the premise is that an asteroid comes and basically like threatens like an extinction event for the entire Earth. So it kind of accelerates the space program because they're like, well, we're all going to be dead in like 30 years. So let's figure out how to create colonies on Mars and the moon like really fast. So the whole program is like accelerated significantly because there's this extinction event. So it's like 50s and 60s alternate history with and, more lady astronauts. Well, uh, lady astronauts mm-hmm. is a fascinating um, subject because we, t- we yeah. talked a little bit about the flats, the first lady yeah. astronaut trainees, yeah. which I love that as a name. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the notion that even though um, Valentina Tereshkova was mm-hmm. the first woman, and then it was twenty years before anybody yeah, before Sally Ride came, was allowed to yeah, well, twenty yeah. years before America sent any other women yeah. into space, but twenty years before um, the Soviets sent any more women. Oh, that's right. I think it was like thirty years for America. It was ridiculous. Yeah, so like a very very big gap, yeah. you know. On the one hand, just a few years mm-hmm. after we sent the first man into space, we're sending the first yeah. woman. And I say we, meaning yeah, humanity, yeah, yeah. not uh, not America. Well, I think the way that Mary Robinette kind of gets around in her books is, hey, we're creating these colonies. So we need to make sure that like women can be on the colonies and stuff too. And once we can show that like women can go to Mars and be safe, then like that'll help convince people to go ahead and move off the planet. Mm. Yeah, They're really I, good books. Like, totally check them out. I, ironically mm-hmm. enough, that's that's sort of using 1960s era sexism sort yes. of in your favor because yes. pl- plenty of men would say, well, if a woman can do it, then yeah. certainly well, I, mean, I can do it. She does a really good job of, like, portraying, like, sexism and, and racism as well in a pretty nuanced manner in her book. She doesn't, it's not all positive. It's, like, it's very balanced. It's pretty cool. Yeah, and um, but what what I was going to say is, um, unfortunately, America's first lady astronaut trainees um, didn't fly in space. Yeah, it's a shame. But there were a lot of really pragmatic arguments for sending uh, female astronauts yeah, into space. Yeah, absolutely. And we talk about these spacecraft being these tiny, cramped spacecraft. Yeah. And I believe the cutoff was six feet um, in terms of height, or maybe five foot eleven. Like yeah, it, it was be. something. Yeah. 
uh, for uh, for astronauts. And I think they said that Tom Hanks, who plays Jim Lovell in the movie Apollo 13, in real life is too tall to oh, be wow. an, an astronaut. So he wouldn't have been accepted wow. into the astronaut corps. But um, you, you think of that, and like that becomes less problematic mm-hmm. if if you're using female astronauts. Yeah. Um, among all you know, all sorts of other things, and yeah. uh, reading about missions to Mars, they talk about how um, men and women, uh, our bodies react differently, right. are affected differently to radiation, yeah. um, zero zero gravity, all these all these different things, and I think. Uh, at the end of the day, particularly when we're talking about long duration missions to Mars and things like mm-hmm. that, they've even talked about sending crews that are in their sixties yeah. because of radiation. She deals with that in her books as well. Like she she's done ridiculous amounts of research to make her books realistic. Like highly recommend the Lady Astronaut of Mars is a novella and then she has like the novella is kind of like a postquel to the two books, and then there's two books that Fascinating. come before that. Yeah. Yeah. So on on the one hand, mm-hmm. while I would say that I think people of all ages, yeah. a- ages, genders, and orientation mm-hmm. should uh, fly in space. That space yeah. is something for all of humanity. Mm-hmm. When it comes to specific missions, if um, there are long duration missions where um, people of certain ages or genders yeah. are better better equipped to do right. the job physically, or you're older, you've already decided you're not having children, then you know it doesn't matter as much if there's damage to your production system. Yeah, you know? that is yeah. As, as strange as it sounds to have like a space cowboys type right? crew of, of yeah. senior citizens. Yeah. Or, you know, an entirely female crew or right. whatever, you know, whatever would be best for the mission, yeah. I, I think, is, is what I would support. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I think we'll... Do we have enough material? I think we'll end <laughs> it on that. Yeah. I mean, that was... Well, it was uh, it was great having you yeah, this on, is fantastic. on our program. Absolutely. And um, if you're ever in the area again, hope to... Maybe we can chat with you again. Absolutely. I'm sure we'll be back. Or go visit one of the museums. Yeah. If we're, if we're I just bought a local. membership to Museum of Flight, so I'm sure we'll be back. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. What a cool museum. Yeah, we'll be um, looking at doing um, in the next com- couple months mm-hmm. an episode on the space shuttle. And interestingly enough, you talked about perhaps uh, having some space shuttle content on your Instagram page as well. Maybe we'll see. Yeah, Kuiper. I have some pictures of him with a trainer. Um, they have a space shuttle trainer at the Stafford Green Space Museum. Oh, as well. multi-access yeah. trainer. Um, no, it's like a it's like a console. Oh, like a simulator. Switches. Yeah, simulator. I guess. Yeah. Fantastic. But, yeah, and I guess every single uh, shuttle astronaut trained on it. Oh wow! Have, that's so. that's spectacular. Yeah. It is spectacular. Maybe you should talk to Museum of Flight people. Maybe you could do an episode with the people there, like the curators or something. Yeah, because mm-hmm. there's a lot it. of really great people yeah. that are that are like the board of directors. Yeah. that would you be can always work your way up. You know, wonderful to have. Yeah, so. it doesn't hurt to ask. That's probably the biggest thing I've learned from like photographing my dog in museums. Is you might get a no, but like you can't get a yes unless you ask. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I think that that's an important lesson in life is you'll never know if you, if you don't ask, and it's yeah. like a, it's like a high school yeah. dance. Yes, I yeah. know it's it's. You know, <laughs> it's, it's it can be, you can feel sad if you get a no. You'll probably get a yes eventually, right. and you might get a surprising amount of yeses, and some of your dance cards fall. Well, and you have bigger I, problems. And I mentioned that I presented at the planetarium because I, I asked them. Yeah. I said, "Surely you must need a degree in astrophysics to be a presenter here." And they said, "No, no, no. In fact, you don't." And I would probably be just as pessimistic. Surely, yeah. surely you won't let my dog and I into this museum to right. take photographs after hours. We're helping to market them as well because a lot of people, you know, mm. they might have a museum nearby, but they don't really think about it. Or unless they have small children, they don't really think about it. And there's yeah. always events and always stuff going on. So if you can help promote that, it's really good for both of you. So well, yeah, we appreciate you sharing yeah. um, your expertise. Different. Mm-hmm. I think just as a closing thought, are there are there any um, other highlights of museums that you visited all around the country that? Um, Let's see. Might come to mind. Uh, U.S. Space and Rocket Center was pretty amazing in Huntsville, Alabama. Like, standing under the full-size Saturn V model that they have outside was like, holy crap. Like, this thing is huge. Like, it's just it, absolutely amazing. It's staggering that we launched yeah. a rocket taller than the Statue of Liberty. Yeah. Um, um, 
National Museum of Nuclear Science and History in Albuquerque is pretty cool. Oh, um, I bet. Yeah, they have all sorts of rock. They have a rocket garden as well. Um, so a, a good way to commemorate the Apollo 11 landing, um, um, if you're if you're not near the Kennedy Space yeah. Center in Florida, would be. I would. It sounds like. Um, I mean, all over the country. I mean, yeah, the very it, large array is also one of our favorite spots. You can uh, just show up. New Mexico. Yes. The very large array yes. in New Mexico. Yeah. So. Um, um, so if, you can just show up, turn your cell phone off, but you can bring your camera, and you can just wander around like when they're open during the day, and like take a walking tour and just take pictures of the, the antennas and stuff. Just oh, so right now it's open to the public. So cool. hopefully it'll stay that way. Uh, the movie Contact, I feel like, sort yeah. of really, really put them we on the map. We try to kind of like recreate the picture of Sagan with him. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. but I, I think a lot of people around the country who might be listening to our program don't yeah. realize that if you're in New Mexico, if you're in Oklahoma, yeah, no matter if you're in where Kansas, you live, like no matter where you live, there's something cool nearby or within a couple hours drive. So that's kind of one of the the key points I'm trying to make on my Instagram is that you know there's stuff all around us. Do you typically road trip around the country or fly to these different um, places? I have done two cross-country road trips the past couple summers. So I'm kind of trying to decide if we're going to travel again this year. But we've been to 27 states together. Hmm. Yeah, no, no offense to our listeners in Oklahoma, but I can't... Because that, that you've presented the most compelling reason for me to go on a trip to Oklahoma. You know, uh, like, I was kind of... I, you know, I don't... I was kind of surprised as well. Like, there's something cool in every state. So, like, I don't look down... I used to kind of look down on state other states because, oh, I live in Oregon, and, you know, we think we're so much better or whatever. But, like, there's something really cool in every state. Like, don't look down on any place. In- including so, moon trees, apparently. Including which, moon trees. Which we learned about. Yeah. Yeah. That would be a cool, uh, like, just to make one Instagram account, just mm-hmm. to be the moon, the moon tree, tree surveyor. That to go try To try to tag all the trees. Yeah. And we visited one of every species so far. Which is hard because there's one the sweet gum moon tree is only in one place in the United States in Indiana, so mm. it's like behind a fence at a forest. And Indiana is one of those states where like, why do I need to go to Indiana? Exactly. Um, there's a couple of flown spacecraft in Indiana as well. There's one I think at the Indianapolis Children's Museum, which we didn't get a chance to see unfortunately. But you know, there's like I said, every state has something cool. Yeah, yeah. Well. Um, Thank you again for being on the program. Yeah, thanks for running me. And definitely, if uh, anyone wants to follow you on Instagram, you are... Yeah, my account is Space Whip It. Space Whip It on uh, Instagram if you want to see um, all of these amazing museums all around the country. And we wish uh, all of our listeners a very happy, what would you say, happy Apollo 11 day. Yeah, on, happy uh, moon day. Uh, happy moon day on uh, July 20th uh, and July 21st. Party like it's 1969.